0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, remembering that you are Lord of all puts a lot of things into context. We testify and join in delighting in your sovereignty and your majesty and who you are. We desire for that confession of Lord to not only come from our lips, but also to come from our lives. There are difficult things and seasons and challenges, but Father, we uniformly confess that you are our Lord. And we desire that our will would be in line with your will. And that our heart would reflect your heart. And that we would be used by you to reflect your generosity that you've shown us in the gospel to a watching and dying world. So Father, would you speak to us? Actually speak to us through your word. And let us hear. To put all the distractions aside and to simply hear our shepherd's voice, and to do what he asks. We pray this in Jesus' name, knowing full well that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is able to do and to accomplish much. Amen. One of my favorite narratives from the Old Testament, even as a kid, was when the two women came before Solomon, claiming to be the mother of a baby. Both had given birth around the same time and in the same house, and one of the babies had died in the middle of the night. And so the women came to Solomon because the one claimed that they had been switched in the middle of that night. You remember his solution? He simply said to divide the baby in half, knowing that the true mother would rather give up the baby to the other than to have the baby die. And so sure enough, once the threat was posed, one of the women insisted on saving the baby, revealing that she indeed was the true mother. People were in awe of Solomon's wisdom because he knew the environment and circumstances necessary to reveal the mother's true identity. And as Pastor Paul said last week, there are many different perspectives on who Jesus is. But one of the implications of that reality is of the spectrum of Jesuses in our world is that there are more who claim to follow him than those who actually follow the Jesus of the Bible. There are bandwagons and posers in religion, too. So how can you ID someone as a follower of Jesus? What marks them? How can you tell? Thinking of the Solomon story, we could ask, what type of real-life reactions would reveal the identity of those who would truly follow Jesus? How can the real identity of believers be known? Well, that's the question that's before the Apostle John and this church that he so dearly loves. If you remember from last week, and if you look in 1 John chapter 2, verses 19-20, through 20, you find that there's a group of false teachers there. This group has denied essential Christian teaching and they have recently left the churches that John is writing to. These are the people who were shoulder to shoulder in kingdom service not that long ago with these very disciples. And those who left, they're creating not only doctrinal confusion, but confusion around the, the identity of what it means to truly follow Jesus. So when John writes things in his letter like, whoever says... Or if anyone says, it's very likely that his recipients have faces of people coming to mind. So John, he wants to give them assurances, and he does that by explaining, here are the marks of a true follower of Jesus. Or as he said it in 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what he wants to give them, is assurance. Assurance. And John's first sure identifier of a true Christian is to note how they interact with sin. You can tell a lot about a magnet's polarity by moving it near another magnet, right? Remember in grade school, you move it and it would either attach to it or it would repel it. Its response tells you something about its nature. And John is saying that you can tell a lot about the spiritual condition of a person when you see how they interact with and respond to sin. And this is immensely helpful, right, in a world where everyone wants to customize their spirituality and identify as something that they may not really be. When it comes to identifying as a Christian, there are outside of you God-breathed criteria that can give God's people assurance. And these same criteria... Can also deny assurance to those who may be in spiritual danger. So how does this work? Let's look at first John chapter one, verses five through ten. That's our text this morning. Here's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And his word is not in us. The roadmap for our text is pretty simple this morning. Verse 5 is this statement. It's it's this message that God is light. And then in verses 6 through 10, we see these sure identifiers in responding to sin. So let's start with just this message, this blanket statement in verse 5, that God is light. This verse kind of echoes all throughout John's letter, and it reminds us of what comes before Look up in chapter 1, verse 2. He's talking about the word of life being Jesus, who they've witnessed in a firsthand way. He says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So he's proclaiming Christ. He's explaining who Christ is. And as he gets into the body of his letter, he's going to explain more about what that proclamation or what that message actually is. And here he says, an integral part of that message is that God is light. We heard it from him, he says, referring to Christ. This message that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But what does this mean? You know, you could take this in a lot of different directions. Light is kind of a vague analogy, and, but we are bound as people of the book to be most interested in what John meant to communicate when he said that God is light. So the first and best indication of meaning is to look around the neighborhood of the verse that the word is in, right? So if you just look at what we just read in 5 through 10, you find that the contrast of darkness helps us understand what he's referring to. Darkness, we know from the rest of the passage, refers to sin, so we're talking about God as light in a, a moral sense. His holiness, his purity, the opposite of sin. Verse 7 says that we walk in light as he is in the light. All right, so this means that God's holy and perfect nature should impact how we live and think. So the neighborhood of the, of the text helps us. Then we can also look at the Gospel of John. Because it's the same author and he uses a lot of light and darkness in his gospel. This is where Jesus famously says, I'm the light of the world. Or in the beginning of the gospel, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Just a few chapters later in John chapter 3, Jesus, the light comes, but, quote, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So we find in the neighborhood of our text and in John's gospel, the same moral sense of what he's referring to with light. It's a moral dimension. It's not just when it's dark at night. It's a spiritual darkness that's related to sin. So God is light, in the words of a scholar, is he's saying that God is absolute in his glory, truth. And holiness. God is perfect and flawless. He has no hint of evil or wickedness in him. There's a double negative in the, in the Greek. He doesn't just say God is light. He says God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. Just to be super clear to us. His righteousness doesn't hesitate. His thoughts don't wander. Sin is totally foreign to his nature. Sin has no home, no foothold in the being of God. This means that He sets the standard of righteousness and holiness and purity. He is perfect in every way. Now you might think, well yeah, I, I, I know that. But imagine if that weren't the case. Imagine if there were a little bit of darkness in some way in our God. That means that there would be a higher standard of purity outside of God Himself. Some judge over Him. I think there's a common motivation behind kind of doing this, of of viewing God in our culture as a better version of us or as um, someone who kind of understands when we mess up. There's a reason that people do that. It's because he's easier to imitate, right? One way of of trying to be godly or satisfying this desire to be good or, or upright or godly is to lower the definition of what godly means, But here we we hear this confession, God is light, no darkness at all, no room for that. This is right in line with John's black and white way of thinking all throughout his letter that we'll find, right? Now you think, okay, I I get that, it's pretty clear, but what does that have to do with John's heart in this letter? Remember, he's after giving these churches assurance that they actually know Christ and that they are true Christians or what a true Christian is. So how does this light and darkness business help God's people know who's in fellowship with God and who's not? Well, it's because we resemble what we worship. And this is why John talks about the nature of God in a lot of different ways. He says God is light. He says God is love. He says he talks about God's righteousness. And he expects all of those things to be to show up in the lives of God's children. So when he says God is light and repels darkness, he goes on to explain how a person's reaction to sin is spiritually telling. But he's got to start with that truth. God is light. And now let's see, let's see if we can identify right and wrong responses to sin since God is that way. And that's what he says in verses 6 through 10. It's this wonderfully kind of clear uh, structure that we have. There are five conditional statements. There are a verse each. And they each explain how a follower will and won't react to the darkness or sin. But before we jump into each individual one, just kind of look, look at those verses really briefly. Just look at the beginning of them. Verse 6, if we say. Verse 7, but if we walk. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. Verse 10, if we say. You notice a similarity or a pattern that's going on? Uh, verse 6, 8, and 10 all describe those who don't truly know Jesus. They are people who only say. But verses 7 and 9, we find two things that identify those who truly know Jesus. Okay, so it's kind of a back and forth thing. And these are going to kind of poke at us a little bit and, and prompt some questions as we go through them. So let's just look at them one by one in verse 6. First, we run into the hypocrite. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him, and that might not seem like that big of a deal, like one day you're in fellowship with God, and other day you don't feel like you're in fellowship with God But John doesn't really mean the day-to-day kind of ebb and flow of the Christian life. When he says fellowship, he's talking about a saving understanding of what it actually means to know God. And we know that because of chapter 1. If you look at verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this is basically if you have a relationship with God or not. That's what he's talking about. And these people are claiming, they're saying, we have fellowship, we have a relationship with God, we know God. But as you keep reading the verse, it says they're walking in darkness. Now walking in darkness, again, isn't an individual or occasional struggle with sin. It's this chosen lifestyle that's... that's Lived in rebellion. It's a pattern. It's it's the person's life is saying the opposite of what their lips are saying. It's the hypocrite. They're saying this doesn't work. You can't say that you have fellowship with God and then live in a way that totally contradicts what you're saying. And so the finishing phrase is: We lie if we do this. We lie and do not practice the truth. We do this doubly wrong, right? One, we're lying. We're saying something that's not true. We don't, we're not bearing family resemblance of the God of light. But then also we're, not, we're being hypocritical and we're stumbling in the darkness and pretending to see. We're doing what we shouldn't and we're not doing what we should. We lie and do not practice the truth. Now, as you read this verse, as will happen a lot in 1 John, a question might be rising in your heart, which is, does our fellowship Or save status before God change when we choose to sin? Like, I still occasionally choose to walk in darkness. Does that mean I don't have fellowship with God? Is that what this verse is saying? Again, we've got to remember the background of the letter. John is helping people who are confused about what it means to be a true follower because of the fakes who just hit the road from their church. So this verse isn't aimed at the Christian who's struggling with sin, But the person who's characterized by it and totally content in it. If we are claiming to be a follower of the perfect and flawless Christ, however, and we are happily enslaved to a lifestyle of sin, then this verse is designed to unsettle us. God graciously shakes our understanding because we are lying to ourselves. So John is not saying, in order to be right with God, we must be completely free of sin, right? He, he would never say, uh, George or Bill are light, and in them is no darkness at all, right? That's not <laughs> what the Bible teaches. And there, I've just talked with countless people who feel overwhelmed by their own sinfulness, and in their struggle, and their struggle against sin, and And I try to remind them that struggling with sin means that there's spiritual desire. There's spiritual hunger. You notice, right? The person who is not in fellowship with Christ doesn't have concern or or care about sin. They're disinterested in it. This is the great irony of maturing in Christ. As you grow in Christ, you're actually more aware of your sinfulness before him. And so there's this temptation to despair, thinking that, well, maybe over time I'll improve enough to feel like I understand why God saved me. But it actually goes in the opposite direction. We become less... His grace is more baffling to us because we keep finding depravity. We keep finding deficits. We keep finding ways that we are dependent on Him that we never even knew. So... This is talking, again, about these two camps of people. This, this hypocrite is not compatible with the true Christian. So what is, then? What kind of walk would bring us fellowship with God, then? Well, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So instead of walking in darkness, we walk in light. And for John, knowing the truth kind of in your head is directly related to how you live. Those two things aren't separate things in his mind. John says that the believer's overall lifestyle corresponds to God's nature and revelation. We live in light of knowing God and knowing his will. Think of it like getting up in the middle of the night and walking around in the dark. I don't maybe you're different than me, but I'm tentative when I can't see anything, and I'm trying to walk around, right? I'm unsure, I'm I'm slow, maybe I'm going to kick my toe on something. We just recently moved stuff around in our bedroom, and so I feel lost now, like <laughs> I don't have my bearings. But in the light, you you don't need to be hesitant. You don't need to be unsure, right? There's this marriage between sight and action, seeing and freedom. John Stott says it this way. He says, As light is seen and then we walk in it, truth is known and then lived. They kind of go together. Now, as we look at verse 7, there's kind of a surprise. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, and you expect to hear God, right? I mean, I did. Maybe you don't. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Well, we read 1 verse 3, so we know that there's kind of this triangle between John and then the Father and the Son and this church, this fellowship that's going on. So why does John say it in that way? Well, remember the environment? Remember these false teachers that are in the background? That they've broken their kingdom partnership and forsaken the truth? And in their case, leaving their church meant leaving their partnership in the gospel? That's what John has in mind here. And this is one of the benefits of walking in the light of the gospel is the sense of partnership that it brings us with Christ's body. We find in many places in the New Testament that, that the body of Christ is instrumental in keeping us walking in the light. That we have an obligation to one another. That the company you keep shapes you into the family's resemblance. And it's mutually reinforcing in either direction. Either it's fellowship with Christ in his body, which is moving toward light, or Satan in the deceived and moving towards darkness. Our fellowship does put us on a different trajectory in either case. So walking in light includes fellowship with others, but not only in fellowship with others, look as we finish the verse. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Again, we must remember that John is thinking in terms of two camps, those who walk in light and darkness. And he's saying that those who walk in light, there's this package deal of of submitting to God and, and walking with him and fellowship with the church and the forgiveness of our sin through the blood of Jesus. Again, we have to be careful and not mistakenly think that he's saying, my walking in the light is what earns me the right to the cleansing of Jesus' blood. Right? At first, if you read it, you can, you can think that, but that would present a real problem because if walking in the light means always obeying all the time, what is the purpose of the cleansing of Jesus' blood then? So walking in the light, we'll see actually in verse 9, includes confession. So we know that this isn't a performance-based salvation that Christ's blood is not a reward, right? It's a grace. It's not not the result of merit. It's the basis of our standing with God. I mean, think about what incredible freedom and grace there is in these words, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we walk in the light, we can be confident that we are forgiven because of what Christ has done. Have you tasted and experienced the deep shame that comes from knowing that you have rebelled against your generous Creator? That you've hurt others? That you've returned to the proven insanity of your own way? How hard have you tried to be good enough for how bad you've been? How long will you scrub at the stain, right? over and over and over again, trying to atone. And how comprehensive is our problem? As soon as you feel like you've got a handle on sin in one area, another one crops up. It's like molehills. I don't know why we didn't have as many molehills in California as here, but they're everywhere here. I don't know how you people aren't just walking around in anger all the time. But there's just like subterranean mischief going on all the time. And then all of a sudden you just, there's another one and there's another one. I mean, I feel like sin can feel like that. You just can't beat it. And yet, see the power of divine blood in this verse. The blood of Jesus doesn't merely nullify or cancel our sin. It doesn't numb it for a while or make it respectable like a stain that you can kind of still see on the shirt. It cleanses and removes it completely. Gone. And which stains does it do that to? Did you see in verse 7? The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't just clean the deep-seated stain. It takes care of all of them. Every last one. It's these kinds of statements that make it utterly ridiculous to believe that Jesus Christ was merely a man. Because no human being's death could possibly claim to atone for another. Every human being, aside from the Lord Jesus, has residing darkness. And is tainted by sin and is capable of even atoning for themselves. But if Jesus is divine and he is eternal, as he claimed, it can be said of him that he is light and in him is no darkness at all. If God has taken on human flesh, that means that his atonement can transfer to humanity. And if Jesus is God and divine, then that means that that transfer can be comprehensive. And save untold billions of people because of his deity. This is an incredible verse and promise for those who walk in the light. This is the cleansed sibling who is in fellowship with others and confident that the blood of Christ is sufficient. In verses 8, In 10, we find kind of a similar person. I'll call this the darkness deniers. You've heard of Holocaust deniers here. John describes darkness deniers. He says in verse 8 in the first phrase, if we say we have no sin, or verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, it's likely that this group of false teachers were kind of the ground floor of a movement called Gnosticism that Gnostics insisted that material things were inherently bad, that physical flesh was lesser than, which meant that the incarnation of Jesus and the need for a bloody cross was utterly ridiculous to them, and it was a demotion if God were to become a man and become material flesh. Well, one implication of devaluing the human body or the material body is that it doesn't really matter what you do with it. And this could explain their claim to be without sin, that their special gnosis or knowledge was sufficient righteousness. Now, we can't be 100% sure that this is the group, but we do know from these verses that somehow, some way, this group thought of themselves as sinless. They were darkness deniers. Well, John says clearly that the claim to be sinless is a lie. Now, you and I may not hear this claim very often in our culture. We just hear like echoes of it through kind of this underlying assumption that if mankind, the goodness of mankind would, would come out if, if we would simply fill in the blank, you know, whatever it is, that everything would be fine. And this is partly why efforts to overcome human sinfulness through things like cultural improvements can, can be manic at times in our world because earthly salvation would depend on that. But God's verdict of humanity is very, very clear. All have sinned. All are guilty in Adam. And we prove that guilt through a nature that then makes choices. So we're guilty by association and nature and choice. And so this claim to be sinless is an outright rejection of what God says and his diagnosis of our problem. The blunt way that John says it is we're calling him a liar. I'm like, "Uh, I don't know, God, if that's really true. Let's get a second opinion on that, right? The most devastating part of verses 8 and 10 is the final phrase in each that says, the truth is not in us, or his word is not in us. And this might not seem as stark as it really is, but this is a way of describing that, that God's gospel has not found a home in this person. And we know that from the rest of 1 John. If you look at chapter 2, verse 21 and 24, you can do that on your own time. But it says basically, you know the truth, and the seed of God's word is in you, God's spirit is in you, creating understanding. So if the truth is not in a person, in John's mind, that means they're not saved. John's, uh, Jesus actually says this in John 5, the Gospel of John. He says to his opponents, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And this kind of makes sense that this is the verdict. If our answer to the darkness of sin is to simply deny that it's there, that there's no need for light, then it it makes sense that there would be no salvation. If you don't sin, then you don't need saving. And so John says, if that's their claim, then that, that clarifies where they're at. So there are darkness deniers. The last Person that we run into here, the last practice is in verse 9. And in contrast to these, if we say, if we say, if we say, we've noticed in verse 7, but if we walk in the light, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God's diagnosis of the problem. If we align with his thinking, and notice how this pairs so well with walking in the light. This totally blows the the notion that walking in light means flawless obedience. Because walking in light includes confession. It means repentance. Now I think John is thinking here categorically. I think he's thinking about those who have initially confessed their sin. But what unites us to Christ initially is what continues, right, to keep us habitually through repentance as well. But notice, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walking in light means experiencing the mercy of forgiveness being released from the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Tasting that. That we are also cleansed from all unrighteousness, which is kind of the lasting result of sin, and in the sense of being defiled. This is staggering. This is not what the world expects, right? How do we be cleansed? Blood is how you're cleansed. How do you walk in the light? How do you have ongoing relationship with God? You acknowledge your sin. Your darkness. This seems backwards and yet it's the promise all the way from the beginning, from the Old Testament. That there would be a day that God provides this true and lasting sacrifice for sin so that he can honestly say, I forgive you. Psalm 51, 1 and 2 is one example of that. When David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is the hope of all the scripture, that all these animals that are being butchered, everybody knows, isn't going to cut it. There has to be something different. There has to be another atoning sacrifice, the propitiation that Ben looked up this week. And this verse asks the last whopper of a question that's kind of been maybe nagging at us the whole time, which is, how can a God who is light, who has no darkness at all, forgive dark people? That's the question, right? How does this work? How is this possible? He can't do what we do and minimize our sin. It's an offense against Him. He can't become less pure to accommodate our sin. The Apostle Paul asks it this way. What fellowship has light to do with darkness? These things don't go together. So how do we end up forgiven? The answer is in three important words in verse 9. Faithful and just, Faithful and just. God is faithful to forgive sins. What is that referring to? First, it's referring to his character. Do you remember when Moses asked to see God or to see the Lord and was granted this kind of unique opportunity to not be consumed but to witness what God is like? And there, God confesses his character. And he says in Exodus 34, where it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is at the heart of who God is. And so his faithfulness is attached to reflecting his character and how he treats his people. But not only that, his faithfulness is tied to his covenant. That he has pledged to actually forgive his people. Listen to Ezekiel 36. It says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations in which you, Israel, have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Why is it so? What is the connection between faithfulness and this confidence that we are forgiven? God's character. The heart of God's character. He is gracious and merciful and forgiving. And he has pledged forgiveness for his people in his word for centuries. And God will be faithful to what he says. But not only faithfulness. Look, it says faithful and just. What is that guarding against? This idea that God could just simply sweep it under the rug, right? I think, how could a holy God do that? If you go back to Exodus 34 and finish that revelation, God reveals himself. He says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There is his justice. He's going to deal with sin in some defining way, in some clear way. Well, what's the basis for that justice? Listen to Romans 3. 23-26 23-26 through 26. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God sent his divine son in human form to live a sinless life. This Jesus, this son, obeyed the father by willingly dying on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sin. God gave up his son to pay for our sin and credited to us his righteous, sinless life. This satisfied his justice for sin and met the demand of righteousness that we lacked. This is how practitioners of darkness become forgiven, cleansed, sons and daughters of light. He is both faithful and just because of what Jesus has done. What are the implications of this? I just have one for those who are still in darkness. And a few for those in light. First, if you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus, you don't know him in a saving way, maybe spending some time in this passage has demonstrated that you are not yet a follower, and maybe you've always thought that you always have been one. Maybe you've told people that, that you have fellowship with God, but you know it's not true. You know it's fake. God has loved you well. If this has unsettled you by using this passage. It is far better to know the truth of your spiritual condition than to live in the deception of religiosity. There is a reason why attempts at changing have not yielded much in your life. There is a reason why guilt remains even though you try to convince yourself that you can make up for it. It's because sinfulness is not merely disappointing ourselves or not living up to human potential. It's offending your holy creator. And so here's the good news, that you are made in God's image and you bear that image. You can still find life in your God-given purpose, but you are also a sinner like the rest of us. And you need to agree with God about this reality as well. What we read is true. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's willing to do that because of Jesus Christ and his death to pay for sin. If you by faith agree that Jesus' death on the cross is God's solution for your sin problem and you desire to follow him as, as your resurrected Lord, you can be adopted into his family today. It sounds backwards, but it's true. Blood cleanses. Confession leads to forgiveness. For those who are in light this morning, we need to walk in light. Though this is aimed at our initial salvation, it's also a great descriptor of what living in Christ looks like, right? How we begin is how we continue. And so we continue to rely on the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. We repent. We believe in his forgiveness. We confess to one another. But walking in the light is not a pattern of flawless activity. It's a, it's a pattern of submission and repentance and fellowship. Does your understanding of walking in the light include repentance and confession? I've met a lot of Christians who do not live in the reality of the forgiveness that God has extended to them. And the extension of forgiveness is less about the quality of the confession and more related to the fact that he is faithful and just. God's covenant and character and cross all testify to the reality of our forgiveness. How odd is it that we hesitate to live in the freedom of the truth that God has done so much to accomplish? How odd is it that we look inward at ourselves for assurance when God has pointed to these three immovable things? Why do we insist on the truthfulness of his word in other ways but hesitate to believe this word, this promise? Live in the forgiveness and cleansing that God has extended. Jesus did not die in vain. He died that we might find new life in him, including a life that lives in the reality of his cleansing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. You have done an immeasurable work in the sending of your Son. We do confess that there is no darkness in you, that you are perfection and holiness. You are the standard of, what it, of what's right and what's true. And I just pray that you would help us to see the difference between saying and living. That God, for those who have been unsettled by these verses, would find uh, a rock in your son Jesus. And those of us who claim to follow you, God, would, would stop denying the reality of your word when you say that you really forgive us when we confess. Help us to walk in that reality as your bride and as a fellowship of saints together. Help us to know how to live that out together well. I pray that you'd lead us in that, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.